Matthew chapter 26. If you're a guest with us, we've been uh, working through the book of Matthew. We've come to a passage of transition at the beginning of Matthew chapter 26, and we'll begin reading in verse number one. And I want to speak for a few minutes this morning on this subject. What is Jesus worth? Matthew chapter 26. And we'll begin reading in verse 1. And this is what the word of God says. When Jesus had finished all of these sayings, he said to his disciples... You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priest and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people, Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. The Gospel of Matthew has been referred to as a passion story with a long introduction. And that is a true statement. For as we come to Matthew chapter 26, we begin the final and most pivotal section of this gospel. As important as Jesus' birth, his miracles, his parables, his prophecies, and his second coming are, they are really just a prologue, an introduction, if you will, to the great conclusion which focuses on the cross of Jesus Christ, the culmination of the gospel, the culmination of redemption history, and the only eternal hope for all of mankind. Matthew deals with the cross in a concise and straightforward way. His gospel could well be called an expanded narrative of the cross. And in the last three chapters... He focuses on this central theme with several concluding elements. In chapter 26, he details the preparation for the cross and the arrest of Jesus. In chapter 27, he presents Jesus' trials, execution, and burial. 
And in chapter 28, he narrates the Lord's resurrection victory over death and his final instructions to his disciples. And here, at the outset of Matthew 26, we have a study in contrast between those who consider Jesus of little worth and one who regarded Jesus of immense worth. A contrast between those who rejected and betrayed Jesus and one who worshipped and served Jesus. In this text, as Matthew begins to describe Jesus' preparations for the cross, he forces all of us to ask, what about me? How much is Jesus worth to me? What value do I place on Jesus? What is Jesus worth? Would you notice with me, first of all, in verses 1 through 5, the plot to kill Jesus? Matthew writes, when Jesus had finished all of these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. And then the chief priest and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people." Now you'll notice in verse number 1 that Matthew emphasizes that the Olivet Discourse, Jesus' final sermon was completed, for he said, when Jesus had finished all of these things. Now this phrase, or its equivalent, is used five different times in Matthew's Gospel. It was first used at the conclusion of Jesus' first sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And the last time it is used is right here at the conclusion of his last sermon, the Olivet Discourse. And Matthew uses this phrase five different times to transition from an important section of Jesus' teaching to the next narrative section of his gospel. And as Matthew begins this new narrative section, he reminds us that throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, he had been preparing his disciples for his death. For instance, in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 21, this is what Jesus said to his disciples. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And then in Matthew chapter 17, verses 22 to 23, he said this, As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And the disciples were greatly distressed. And then finally, in Matthew chapter 20, verses 18 to 19, Jesus said this to his disciples, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised 
on the third day. Now, I don't know if you caught it or not, but in each of these three passages that I read to you, Jesus' prophecies about his coming death grow increasingly detailed. In the first passage, Jesus merely tells of his death and his resurrection. In the second passage, he adds his betrayal. And in the third passage, he adds the involvement of the Gentiles in his mocking and flogging, and specifically his crucifixion. And now, on the heels of all of these prophecies and warnings from Jesus to his disciples, and on the heels of his teaching on his second coming in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus reminds his disciples of these earlier predictions of his death by saying in verse 2, look at it, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. The Passover The time the Jewish people hold the memorial feast that looks back on their redemption from Egypt through the death of the Passover lamb, Jesus says, was two days away. But this celebration would be overshadowed by Jesus because as he says to his disciples, he will be delivered up to be crucified. And notice the language that Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He is speaking with certainty, helping them make the connection between the Passover and the slain of the sacrificial lambs and his own death as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. For the sacrifices of all of these other lambs in the Passover celebration were faint symbols of what Jesus the true lamb would accomplish in reality through his death on the cross. And the contrast that Jesus is making here in verse number 2 from the previous two chapters in his Olivet Discourse are striking. Before Jesus receives the crown, he must endure the cross. Before he sits On his throne of judgment, he must be judged. Before he returns in power and glory, he must experience the loneliness of the garden, the betrayal of one of his own, the brutal crushing of his body, and the excruciating pain of his death by crucifixion. Additionally, Jesus' statement in verse 2 reminds the disciples and us Note this carefully, that the events that are about to take place were planned by God long before they ever plotted and conceived them by man. For friends, only a sovereign God in His grace could bring His one and only Son to the cross. No human power could bring about this death apart from the will of God. And no human power could prevent this death because it was God's sovereign plan for His Son. As Peter declared on the day of Pentecost in his first sermon in Acts chapter 2 and verse 23, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God Himself. 
self. Now notice why this is important. Because in verses 3 and 4, as Jesus was speaking to his disciples about his impending death, Matthew tells us that the chief priests, the wealthy and religious nobility, and the elders of the people, the wealthy and influential lay people, gathered in the palace of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. And you'll notice in these verses that at the center of this plot to kill Jesus was a man whom Matthew names as Caiaphas. Caiaphas was a conniving, treacherous, deceitful man. And in every passage of Scripture where he is mentioned, he is seen pursuing the absolute destruction of Jesus. Like Herod, his hatred and fear of Jesus was not for theological reasons. It was for political reasons. He wanted to destroy Jesus because he feared that Jesus posed a serious threat to his position and his power over the Jewish people. Caiaphas was driven by greed and selfishness and jealous ambition. He had no sense of justice or righteousness or propriety. He had no regard for his country or the people or his religion. His only thoughts were for himself. And John, in his gospel, tells us that when the religious leaders didn't know what to do with Jesus, it was Caiaphas who in an effort to keep his power said in John eleven fifty, it is better for you that one man should die for the people than that the whole nation should perish. Now this is not the first time that the religious leaders have met to discuss what they should do with Jesus. If you followed along in the Gospel of Matthew, they have been opposing him all the way and they have tried repeatedly to arrest him and do away with him. But here in verse 5, they get specific and notice what they say. They decide to arrest Jesus secretly. But they're not going to do it during the seven days of the Passover because the crowds would be too large and they feared that there would be an uproar among the people. Notice this and think about it clearly. During the many times when they wanted to kill Jesus through the course of the Gospel of Matthew, they couldn't. And now when they wanted to postpone putting him to death, guess what? They couldn't. As Proverbs 19.21 says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that stands. For when God, in his sovereignty, allowed Jesus' enemies to crucify him, it was at the very moment that they attempted to wait. Notice in these first five verses, friends, in this plot to kill Jesus, Notice carefully, we see the value that Caiaphas and the other religious leaders placed on Jesus. As far as they were concerned, their power, their prestige, their position, and their privilege were more important than Jesus and his claims. And to them, 
Jesus was worth more dead than he was alive. When we not only see the plot to kill Jesus, we also see the preparation to bury Jesus. And we find this in verses 6 to 13. Note what Matthew records. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. And she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. And in pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Now, you have to notice these verses carefully. They're recorded in slightly different ways by Matthew, Mark, and John. I want you to note, first of all, that this account happened before Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. In verse 6, the scene shifts to Bethany. And what Matthew does here in verses 6 through 13 is inserts an account that took place on the previous Saturday when Jesus and his disciples came to the house of Simon the leper in Matthew chapter 21 and verse 1. And so Matthew, in weaving his gospel together, puts this account in the middle between the two bookends of this section that we're studying. And notice carefully what he describes in verse number 6. He is in the house of Simon the leper. And this is striking because a leper was not allowed to live in the town or the city area. And they were not allowed to associate with non-lepers. They were outcast and put outside of public life. So clearly, this man had been cleansed. And because leprosy was incurable by medical means, we can deduce that Jesus was the one who miraculously healed him. Now, when you study John's parallel account of these verses, you learn that along with Jesus, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were also present. And Martha, typical fashion, was busy serving a meal as a gesture of love and friendship and care to Simon and all of his guests. And notice in verse 7 that while Jesus reclined at the table, Matthew says, a woman came up to him. And with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, she poured it on his head. Now you'll note in verse 7 that Matthew does not identify this woman. But John in his gospel does. And John tells us that it was Mary, the sister of Martha, and Lazarus. And Mark, describing the scene in his gospel, says this, that the alabaster flask of ointment that Mary had was pure nard, and it was very costly. Matthew, uh, John describes it in even greater detail. 
And he says that Mary took a pound of this expensive ointment that was made of pure nard. And this ointment that Matthew, Mark, and John are describing was very expensive. It was a luxury item that was imported from India. And listen carefully. It was especially and primarily used for anointing the dead. And additionally, from Mark's account, we learn that this very expensive ointment was worth more than 300 denarii. And you say, well, how much is that? And it is worth a year's wages for a common laborer or a soldier in that day. Some scholars estimate it to be $30,000 or more in our day. And notice carefully, Matthew doesn't say this, but Mark does. He says that when she took that ointment, that very expensive flask of ointment, not only did she pour it all out over Jesus, she broke the flask that contained the oil, making this an extravagant and costly act. One commentator described it this way, the use of such expensive oil was an act of extravagant, extravagant devotion. And Matthew describes in this verse that Mary poured this, poured this ointment out on Jesus' head. And John adds the fact that he was also anointed on his feet. And that Mary bent down as she was anointing his feet. Listen to this. And took her hair and wiped Jesus' feet with her hair. John says that as Mary broke this flask and as she poured all this expensive ointment out over Jesus' head and as she knelt down and poured it on his feet and wiped his feet with her hair, the aroma of the anointment was so strong. Listen, John says that it filled the entire house. Can you picture the scene? Martha's busy, sweating, trying to get dinner just right. Jesus reclining at table with Lazarus, talking about the day. Mary comes in, breaks the bottle, pours it over Jesus' head, over his feet, bends down, wipes his feet with her hair, and the fragrance goes throughout the house. One commentator described this act of love and honor and service by saying, Mary poured out her soul in worship, even as she poured out the perfume. And being absolutely controlled by adoration for her Lord, she lost all sense of restraint and economy. Did you hear that? In her act of extravagant devotion and worship, she lost all restraint, just like you do when you're faced with donuts. You lose all restraint and semblance of economy. But Mary was not focused on donuts. She was focused on Jesus. And listen, don't miss this point, friends. This is not a... Raw, raw sermon. This is a sobering, 
thinking, examining text. It probes. It pokes. It makes us uncomfortable. Why did she do this? Because she was expressing her love to Jesus for what he was about to do for her. Now notice in verse 8, when the disciples saw what this woman did, Matthew says they were indignant, they were furious, they were angry, saying, why this waste? Put a pin in that. And then in verse 9, in their indignation, they reasoned, for this could have been sold for a large sum of money and given to the poor. Now, when you are studying the Gospels, I'm going to show you why you need to study parallel passages in the Gospels. Because different writers of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they write for different reasons and they write for different audiences. And some of them give more details on different scenes than others. And if you look here in the text in verses 8 and 9, Matthew describes that all of the disciples were indignant with Mary. But when you study John's account of this passage, here's what you find in John chapter 12 and verse 4. Judas led the disciples' complaint to Mary. And according to John, Judas made this objection over Mary's act of extravagant devotion, and I quote, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used it to help himself to what was put in it. Judas and probably many of the other disciples were not a bit concerned in that moment about the poor. Judas wanted this money from the ointment for himself. He was not thinking about Jesus. He was not thinking about the poor. He was thinking about Judas. And listen, friends. Think about the placement of this text. It is on the heels of the Olivet Discourse and Jesus teaching them in detail about his second coming and challenging them to be prepared and ready. And after all of Jesus' teaching, the disciples still did not get it. They described, remember I told you to put a pin in it? This extravagant act of devotion, did you see it in verse 8? As waste. She wasted this on Jesus. Warren Wearsby said, nothing given to Jesus in love is ever wasted. Her act of worship not only brought joy to the heart of Jesus and fragrance to the house, but also blessing to the whole world by this account because her devotion encourages us to love and serve Christ with our best. Extravagant devotion. And although according to Mark chapter 14 and verse 4, the disciples' indignation was not voiced Openly, but only among themselves and to Mary. Look at what Jesus says in verse 10. Matthew says that Jesus was aware of their rumblings and their murmurings and their antagonism towards Mary. And he says to his disciples, 
Why do you trouble the woman? She has done a beautiful thing. Now notice what's happening in the text, friends. Mary understood what the disciples did not want to understand. That Jesus had to die in order to rise again. And unlike the disciples, she was not caught up in the carnal, selfish desire for Christ to establish his kingdom immediately right now. She knew before his kingdom came the cross. And she understood that because of this truth and because of this reality, this was not the time to be thinking of herself This was the time to worship. And look at what Jesus says about her actions. He says that what she did was beautiful in his eyes. The disciples, they saw what she did as a waste. Jesus saw it as a thing of beauty. And in verse 11... Jesus responds to the disciples' remark about helping the poor. And he says, for you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. And with these words, Jesus is echoing Deuteronomy 15.11, as well as a rebuke for the disciples being so rigid to their duty that, listen, that they had no room for extravagant worship. They were so caught up in their agenda, they had no room for worship. They had forgotten what Jesus had taught them over and over and over throughout the course of the Gospels. And here's the principle, friends. Jesus first and everything and everyone else second. He said to them, If you are going to follow me, you got to deny yourself. You got to take up your cross and you got to follow me. If you want to be one of my disciples, you got to love me more than you love your father or your mother or your brother or your sister. I must be first in your life and everyone and everything else must be second. And then notice in verse 12. Jesus reframes the disciples' understanding of this woman's act of worship. And he says, in pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. I love what Mark says in his account about Jesus' words. Listen carefully to it. He says that Jesus said to Mary, She has done what she could. Oh, don't you love that? She did what she could. Mary couldn't be scourged. She couldn't be mocked. She couldn't be spit upon. Mary couldn't carry Jesus' cross. She couldn't die in the place of sinners. She couldn't rise from the grave. She couldn't ascend to heaven and promise to come back and usher in a heavenly kingdom. She couldn't do any of these things. But she could worship. She could break the flask. She could pour out the ointment. 
She could wipe his feet with her hair. She could serve Jesus by preparing him for his burial. And she could express to Jesus how much he was worth to her. And look at the text, friends. She did. She did what she could do. And in Jesus, referencing his burial, he relates Mary's actions to the normal burial rite in which a dead body would be covered in perfume to hide the smell. And her acts with this ointment over Jesus' body, not only, don't miss this, they don't only signify his impending death. When she anoints his head, it signifies his impending reign as King of kings and Lord of lords. Both his death and his resurrection. She anointed him. How did she understand all of this when the disciples who had lived with him for three years missed it? Have you wondered that? How'd she get it? Everybody else around her missed it. How did she not miss it? Because she did what she's always done in her relationship with Jesus. She did what she's doing now. She sat at his feet. In Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 42, you know the passage. Mary and Martha are together with Jesus, and Martha is in a frenzy preparing to serve Jesus. And Mary, the Bible says, sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. And she did it so long, Martha got ticked off. And Jesus had to correct her and say to her, Mary has done the one thing that is necessary. Do you hear that? The one thing that is necessary. And what is that one thing? To sit at the feet of Jesus. And when she's mentioned again, in John chapter 11, verses 28 to 32, in the context of the death of Lazarus, the Bible says that when Jesus came to respond to Lazarus' death, Mary fell at his feet. She's mentioned these three times in Scripture, and every single time we see Mary, we see her in the same posture, sitting at the feet of Jesus, worshiping Jesus, and learning from Jesus. How did Mary know and understand all of these things that the disciples missed? Because she listened. She slowed down. And she worshipped. Warren Wiersbe said she found at his feet her blessing. She brought to his feet her burdens. And she gave at his feet her very best. That is how she knew. And in verse 13, Jesus declares that this act of worship and devotion is so significant that wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what 
she has done will be told in memory of her. And friends, I just read you the verse. And you know what? Jesus' prophecy was just fulfilled. And every single time you open the gospel of Matthew and you read this account, Jesus' prophecy is fulfilled. And every single time the gospel is preached and Mary is mentioned, this prophecy is fulfilled. And don't miss this. Nothing, nothing done for Christ, no matter how small, will ever be forgotten. It'll never be forgotten. That's why you're to find encouragement from this passage and why you're to keep on working, serving, worshiping. So let me ask you this morning, Christian, are you like Mary? Do you love and serve Christ with your best? Do you love Jesus with what is most valuable to you? Do you do what you can for Christ? Do you sit at Jesus' feet learning from him and worshiping him? Or are you too busy? Or are you making too many excuses? Do you express your extravagant love and devotion to Christ like Mary for what he's done for you? Or do you take his work on the cross on your behalf for granted? As I was thinking about this account and thinking about the question that I posed to you at the beginning, how much is Jesus worth to you? How valuable is he worth to you? And as I was thinking about these application questions, I couldn't help but remember my days in junior high school. Now that's scary. And I remember I was in the stage band, the special group of band. And I got a silver trumpet, a Bach Stradivarius trumpet. It was the real deal. It was serious. And I remember how shiny that thing was, and it came with all kinds of special instructions. You had to polish it, or it would tarnish and turn black. Every now and again, you had to take it all apart and put it in a certain type of bath water. And literally, this is what the guy at the music store said, you have to give it a bath. Did you ever hear of giving a trumpet a bath? You had to give it a bath. And I remember being so scared to even take that thing out of the case. And the case for it was leather. And I was scared to death to even pick that thing up and hold it. But you know what happened? Like anything else over time, I became less afraid of it. I stopped giving it a bath. I noticed a little black here or there or everywhere. And, oh, that'll be okay. I'll get it sometime. And then before you know it, you pop the lid open to the case and you pull the cover back because it even had a cover in the case to cover this thing up. Instead of silver, it's black. Why? Because I took something that my parents worked extremely hard for to buy and I took it for granted. Can't you see in this text 
I told you, this, this is not a raw, raw sermon. And some of you have struggled to stay with me today. And I understand it. I'm trying to keep you engaged as best I can. It is possible to take Jesus for granted. It is possible to make excuses, even on the heels of all we've been studying these last months in the Olivet Discourse where the Bible has been in our face. Wouldn't you agree? It is still possible to walk away from all of that and make excuse after excuse after excuse for why we're too busy to sit at his feet. To struggle with all of our anxieties and fears and doubts and the problems of life and our own strength when we could sit at his feet like Mary and listen and worship and walk away different. And we justify our busyness for so many things when in reality we're neglecting. I want to say this morning by way of application to the weary in the room, to the discouraged, to the defeated, to the disheartened, to the broken Christian, what J.C. Ryle asks. Do we know what it is to work for Christ? If we do, let us take courage and work on. What greater encouragement can we desire than we see in this text? We may be laughed at and ridiculed by the world. Our motives may be understood. Our conduct may be misrepresented. Our sacrifices for Christ may be called waste. A waste of time, a waste of money, a waste of strength. Let none of these things move us. Oh, do you hear that, Christian? Let none of these things move you. The eye of him who sat in Simon's house in Bethany is upon us. And he notes all we do. And he is well pleased. So, Christian, let us be steadfast. Let us be unmovable. Let us always be abounding in the work of the Lord. For our labor in the Lord is not in vain. Oh, it's not in vain. It's going to be worth it one day. For everything that you've sacrificed to pursue Christ. It'll be worth it all on that day. And on that day you will not say I did too much. You will say I wish I would have done more. So do. Do like Mary. And do all you can. Listen. Don't do all I can. Don't do all the person beside you can. That's not the standard. Do all you can for Jesus. We not only see the plot to kill Jesus and the preparation to bury Jesus, finally, we see the payment to deliver Jesus in verses 14 to 16. And then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity 
to betray him. In verses 14 and 15, don't miss the connection. We see that the dilemma of verses 3 to 5, how the religious leaders were plotting to get Jesus, is resolved. Because Judas went to them and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And notice carefully in the text that Judas' actions stand in stark contrast to those of Mary. Mary openly worshipped Jesus. Judas secretly betrayed Jesus. Mary was saved through the work of Christ. Judas was destroyed for his rejection and betrayal of Christ. And both Luke and Luke 22.3 and John and John 13 tell us that Judas's actions and betrayal were the effect of Satan's influence upon his life. And Jesus confirms this truth in John 17 when he called Judas the son of destruction. And in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 24 when he said to Judas, Woe to that man by whom the son of man is bestrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had never been born. If he had never been born. And look in verse 15. The chief priests respond to Judas's question by paying him 30 pieces of silver. And what's the significance of that pastor? Well in Exodus chapter 21 and verse 32. 30 pieces of silver was defined for a slave that was gored by an ox. And in Zechariah chapter 11 verses 12 and 13. God's faithful shepherd rescued Israel from evil shepherds and they paid him 30 pieces of silver. It's to fulfill prophecy. And so for the price of a slave, Judas sold out his teacher, his leader, his friend, and his savior for 30 pieces of silver. And notice the contrast once again. It's sobering. Mary according to Judas, wasted a year's salary. And Judas accepted four months' salary to betray Jesus. Judas and his life is a stern reminder of Scripture's warnings regarding the lure and the grip of the world. Now listen carefully to these verses that I'm going to read to you this morning. I'm almost finished. You can see we're at verse 15. One verse to go. So stay with me. And listen to these warnings. They're sobering. Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other. Or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You can't do it. Jesus said it himself. You'll be distracted. You'll be taken away. You can't serve me and the world. And Judas' life is a testimony to that reality. Listen to Mark chapter 8, verses 36 and 37. These two verses are some of the most sobering verses in all of the Bible, friends. Jesus said, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What does it profit you on the day of your death if you gained everything that the world can offer you? 
and you lose your soul, will it have been worth it? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul, Jesus says. And then Paul to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. This is the testimony of of Judas. Judas loved himself more than Jesus. Judas loved money more than Jesus. And Judas expressed his devotion to Satan instead of Jesus. And in the end, Judas hated himself for betraying Jesus. And in verse 16... Matthew concludes this account writing, from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. And We know from the text of Scripture that that opportunity was when Jesus was all alone praying in the garden. The scene is set, the characters are cast, and the drama of Christ's sacrifice on the cross is in motion. And Judas is the greatest example of a forsaken opportunity the world has ever known. He turned his back on Christ, and Christ turned his back on Judas. Think of it, friends. He saw the miracles. He heard the teaching firsthand. He lived in fellowship with all of the other disciples. How could Judas miss it? I don't know. I can't answer that question. But people miss it every day. People miss it every Sunday. You come to church. You hear the music. You might even sing. You listen to biblically faithful sermons. You have a good church. You have Christian friends. You speak the language. You're raised in a Christian home. You can be so close to Jesus like Judas and still miss him. It happens all the time. And so I ask you this morning, unbeliever, has the influence of Satan, the grip of the world, or the pride of your life caused you to miss Jesus and see him as worthless. Where do you see yourself in this account? Are you Mary or are you more like Judas? This passage is a study of contrast between the one who considered Jesus of little worth and the one who regarded him of immense worth. 
A contrast between those who rejected and betrayed Jesus and one who worshipped and served Jesus. To some, Jesus was worth more dead than he was alive. But to one, he was like the treasure hidden in a field. When a man in his joy went and sold all that he had, and he bought the field. Or he was like a pearl of great value. And when the one found this pearl of great value, they sold all that they had to gain the pearl. And this text forces us uncomfortably to ask ourselves, what is Jesus worth? What is he worth to me? What value do I place on Jesus? Are you Mary? Or are you Judas? Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for your word today and for this time of worship and gathering as your people. And we thank you for the things that we've been able to sing to you and to sing to one another. And we thank you for the prayers that we've been able to pray over one another and offer to you. And we thank you, God, for hearing our prayers and for meeting us in this place and time of worship. And we thank you for your word. And God, we have to confess to you today that we don't always love you like we should. Or even like we want to. And we pray today that you would forgive us. That you would empower our desires. To love you more. To worship you more. To treasure you more. And we pray today for those who don't know you. That you would use this text to draw them to yourself. And that you would save them. We thank you for this time and we make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.